CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to CEU Medieval Radio. We're here today to, for another installment of CEU's Past Perfect program with a special emphasis on medieval music and dance, also known as Boogie Nights. We're very pleased today to have with us our special guest, uh, Jonathan Cohen. Jonathan Cohen is one of the leading early music conductors and performers uh, active in the world today. Uh, we're fortunate to be able to take advantage of his presence here in Budapest, Budapest Festival Orchestra in Vivaldi, and, and we're very grateful to him for taking his time out for an interview with us to talk about the recreation of lost sound worlds, something that he's a bit of a specialist in. Johnny's a leading conductor, cellist, and keyboardist. He plays a mean harpsichord and is well known for his activities in the early music, especially in the, period, in the Baroque period um, and the early classical period. He's known for his passion and commitment, especially to chamber music. He's the artistic director of Baroque chamber music group Archangelo. He's music director of Les Violons de Roi, uh, artistic director of the Tetbury Music Festival, and artistic partner of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. In addition to his appearances with the Budapest Festival Orchestra here in 2020, he has engagements with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, the Iceland Symphony Orchestra, Handel and Haydn Society, uh, symphony orchestras in both the old and the new world, and he tours the USA with Les Violons de Roi, and continues his collaboration with St. Paul Chamber Orchestra during the year. So Johnny is a star among stars among the early music scene, and we are extremely grateful to have him here with us today. One thing that we want to try to tap your expertise in, Johnny, is something that we have been talking about in the context of some of our seminars and colloquia here, which is how do we recreate the past, um, and in this case, past sound world, where performance practice or traditions have been broken and had to be recreated. Your period of specialties, particularly in the Baroque and early classical period, CEU Medieval Radio has a mandate to go up to 1700. So what I'd like mm -hmm. to focus the conversation on today is the period prior to 1700, the earliest part of the Baroque period, in which you have recorded any number of things and are no, a known expert in the music of Buxtehude, Charpentier, John Blow, Monteverdi, Cavalli, etc., etc., etc. Can we get your views, please? When, how do you go about recreating the sound worlds of the past. You know, let's start with, you know, from the very beginning, how do you select repertoire? Well, so it's a very interesting question that you're talking about. I think it's very relevant with music because of course, whenever we pick up our instruments and play music, we're always just recreating the past, whether it's something written, you know, 50 years ago or 500 years ago. So there's the inevitable question of, you know, I guess you have to sort out your priorities. What is it you're trying to do? You're trying to make something sound how it did sound, or are you trying to make something sound anew in a kind of, uh, let's say, form which is kind of uh, highlighted by the past? I don't know. So maybe we have to understand that first. But what I think is important is to, to try to understand what was going on in the past. I think you have to, to put yourself in some kind of cultural framework. Otherwise, it's just too large, isn't it? What could be done? So I think you have to be informed, for sure, by the methods of the past, by the by the imagination of the past, and then you have to make a lot of choices which are relevant to the contemporary situation. What instruments do you have? How, how do you play them? What kind of tuning systems do you want to use? Uh, all those kind of things. There's, I'm not sure the goal for, for me uh, or for us is to necessarily try to make a carbon copy of 
what might be done because because I, I don't know whether it's right but i have a view also that that maybe not a lot changes in terms of human nature i mean we're still kind of uh, jealous and and angry and loving and all those things in the same way that we might have been evolution acts <laughs> on very slow timetable yeah, yeah well, by it, comparison it, with human history exactly so so i think that there would have been also uh, a lot of discussion about for example tuning 500 years ago in the same way that we might discuss that now i think there's also a very strong idea now that it was done a certain way in a certain time and i'm not sure that's true i think it was maybe closer to the truth is it was done more in a certain way but between themselves i'm sure people had exactly the same kind of arguments that let's let's place that third a bit more sweetly or let's let's not uh, let's let's go a bit faster here or you're rushing and i'm not and those sort of things are uh, i think uh, are very prevalent today because we have many different types of people of different types of temperaments and those things always clash through the through the making of the art and that's part of maybe the the joy of doing of recreating sound worlds is we get to have the same um, human conflicts and tussles through art that we might have done many many years ago and that probably connects us somehow with the past mm. i mean so I, I was i was amused by a reference to you know sort of recreating the music of 50 years ago of mm. course uh, as a, or 500 years yeah. ago you know yeah. being intellectually the same question of course some paths are more accessible to us sure. than others either in the sense mm. of recordings being available yes you can go back to the early 20th late 19th century to hear how people perform things and sometimes it is extremely illuminating for example when you hear the recordings of the old castrato and you you think gusang and you think how could anybody possibly have found this pleasant mm -hmm. um but more importantly you know sort of i think from a practical musician's perspective there's the idea of performing practice you learned from your teacher who taught learned from his or her teacher etc all the way back you know that's why so many modern pianists can trace their playing style back to Brahms or to Schumann or to Liszt yes because you know sort of you can trace the that's true that a, a, um, a tradition passes down through through people that pass on advice and uh, kind of aesthetic let's say but I, I was doing some Philip Glass music not not too long ago and I thought that was in, very interesting because you might say well because the music's so recent everyone knows how to do it but actually I, th I think maybe like cooking they, these things take a long time to decide what is the history or tradition so for example I guess when Mozart produced his scores and they did operas it probably takes like 50 100 years of people doing it to start to define a style of what they're doing at the time that you're doing it it's many things and it's the act of doing something new is the act of setting something on paper to be explored and then it gets defined as a tradition later mm. so that's important i think once something gets starts to get defined as a tradition already it's lost some kind of aspect of its newness let's say even if we wanted to play music by Mozart in the fresh style of new Mozart compositions going to a tradition of Mozart playing is already I think behind let's say uh, maybe we can say a tradition is something that calcifies or sets in stone which already um, loses some kind of elasticity and newness about things but at least in the case of Mozart you know and others of you know sort of that era you know one can trace back a direct line you know sort of a continuous performance where you can you may not agree with all the decisions that have been taken along the way in, mm -hmm. in terms of its interpretation but you can you can trace it back to the original source i think much of what we're talking about in this period and certainly in the earlier periods of mm -hmm. ceo yeah, of ceu medieval radio is 
save for the sole exception of the Gregorian chant, we do not have continuous performance practice. And someone, somewhere yeah, yeah. along mm. the way, whether today or in the 80s, when historically informed practice, you know, sort of began to be revived, or sometime in the distant past, revived it. Yes. And how did they revise it? Revive it using what principles? Well, I, so so here here takes on um, here takes on a new subject, which is which is how to use one's imagination over a pass of time. I, I did an interesting exercise when I was about eighteen or nineteen. I said I decided to read lots of authors, and maybe that the best way of re understanding them would be to read everything that they wrote. Let's say, and it's certainly true. When I, I used to play in a string quartet as well, when we played uniquely Haydn quartets called the London Haydn Quartet, mm -hmm. we played whole programs of Haydn. And it's certainly true with such an enormous amount of literature, a lot of string quartets. If you devote yourself just to Haydn string quartets, you start to see patterns between opus numbers. You start to somehow you get to know the style much better just by burying yourself in that. So one of the advices I would I would have really, you know, if you want to speak the language of Vivaldi or Charpentier is, is really just get to know all Charpentier's music, all his contemporaries' music. And suddenly you put yourself directly in, in the world just by the amount of sheer volume of information that you're, that you're um, digesting. Uh, it's very hard when you're in one, one place, let's say, or listening to a certain type of music. Let's say you, you only really heard 20th century music or pop music, and then suddenly you hear a piece of Charpentier. It's like going to a you know, completely different. It's like going to you know when you go to when you go to Japan and you don't read or speak Japanese. Mm. They, 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 it's like going to Kabuki different. theater for this for, for the first time. What you are they no talking about? Brown, yeah. You don't understand the conventions. Yes. So you've got to put yourself in those things. I mean, I don't. Mm. I can't. I mean, for medieval things, I I wonder how how it would be to to visit every medieval architecture in Europe. How mm. it would be to to look at every extant medieval manuscript and to be able to read in a certain kind of language of the time and start to read all the documents of everything in the time to really sort of ingest all the information gives you a lot more of a of a relevant imagination into the world so i think that's what we what we do musically anyway certainly if i'm doing a piece of vivaldi this week i draw on all my experiences of other works of doing vivaldi when i applied to Cambridge University to do music. Uh, I, I I did a year out before, so I so I got in to do music, but I spent a year studying the cello conservatoire. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to Cambridge, and I asked my director of music, "What can I do to prepare for arriving to do music in Cambridge undergraduate degree next year? What should I spend my year doing?" And he said, "I'll send you a document, and and maybe you can do what's on that." So I got this document, and it was a PDF of about fifty pages. And so page one was, learn all these pieces of music, listening and studying with a score. And then it said Mozart, string quartets, piano concertos, symphonies, <laughs> operas. And then you turn the page to Bach, orchestral suites, violin concertos, cantatas. And it just went through all the major composers from about, I don't know, 1590 to, through to the modern mm. day with all their literature. Go and study music. Then we can be in a position to start talking about music. I think that's the so that's the advice I would give. Just mm. get buried in sheer volume of the whole of the past. What about you know sort of more mechanical type things? You know, once you have assembled this vision of how to transcend the individual works, and you get a sense of the entire body mm. of the corpus uh, of the time, you then go and you have 
an ensemble or you have to form an ensemble yeah yeah um who then has to recreate the work and let's just start from the very beginning you know sort of how do you go about choosing the yeah. right players yeah. once they sit down what is your a yes it's very, yes so the whole thing is very interesting because the, the story of music history from the beginning to the invention of music in medieval time is, is the story of the creative process turning from essentially an oral tradition into a absolutely prescribed tradition. So mm -hmm. if you go to Mahler symphonies, there's not one note which is not with a staccato or a line or a, or um, I mean that's, that music is also very much embedded within a within a culture. So uh, maybe even kind of ultra contemporary music, the musician is almost uh, like a sort of MIDI file on a computer to play exactly what the composer wants. In the Baroque music, we're really inventing a lot of things. We have some structures already, much more than in medieval times, when it, when they're really exploring with how to even make harmony and what does harmony mean and what does it mean when we put two notes together. So already by, I suppose, 1600, we start to have a, a framework called harmony and harmonic. So, you know, essentially have the root and then in medieval times, I suppose, they, they learn what, what is it to make with the fourth and the fifth. And then when the triad came along and they put the third in, now we have the, the basic harmonic uh, building blocks. And yes, and this is where you get into the transition from, you know, sort of the ancient modal system into modern tonality, which I think during the period mm. that we we're talking about, you know, the mm. 1600s, 17th century, you know, composers like Charpentier were right in the, the thick of making that transition and really establishing modern tonality as the way in which music was written. Yeah, uh, exactly. So I think... Certainly from my perspective as someone working in the earlier music period, the idea of harmony is um, almost like a giant underpinning of everything that I do. And I actually I somehow find it that it can be a unique... Uh, when, when, when I work with symphonic orchestras who often do a lot of later repertoire, I find myself always pushing back to phrasing coming from harmony and harmonic um, harmonic relationships being, being almost uh, a sense of rhetoric in the music which has been a bit lost now with uh, with with our with our later period of music well let's be this let's turn then to the topic of notation which i think mm -hmm. is one of the, the main challenges of looking at early music is how little instruction you get when you look at the manuscript and when you, even when it's edited and it's made put into musical scores that you know the ordinary musician mm -hmm. can read not no longer in funny clefs or anything like that but the modern score as you said everything is marked Right. You know, so Mahler, Mahler told the player exactly what to do and every one of the players in the orchestra exactly what to do. But you don't have to go very far back. You know, look at the score of the Handel opera, for example. You know, these are very, these can be very long operas like Julius Caesar is a very mm -hmm. long thing. But if you look at the score, it's quite short because there's very little there. Yeah, in, 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 in Baroque music, for sure, you will very rarely find dynamics. Mm -hmm. You rarely find speed markings. Mm -hmm. Often it doesn't really even tell you what instruments mm -hmm. to use. So you might have a soprano instrument part, so it would be in a register that's clear from the clef. But then you could, for example, in in 17th century, you could give that part often to a flute or a violin mm -hmm. or a, a voice if you had some text underneath. And those things would often reflect on... Um, the relevance of the instrument. So, for example, the flute would be kind of a pastoral instrument. It would have a certain connotations. You could also tell from the key. In a lot of mm. Bach's music, for example, everything E-flat or flat keys tends to be towards the death of slumber piece. I mean, you find these things when, as I say, if you get immersed in all 
in music, you find that everything to do with peaceful death is in E flat. You find when you do Mozart's music, everything in C minor means tragedy for him. But not everything, but you know, it's a common mm -hmm. theme. So you can start to pick out patterns. Flute works in relevance to these uh, texts, or this has this, this must have this connotation of the instrument for that period in the music. And this is how it's used by the composer. So it's not improbable that we could use it in similar situations where there's no instructions about where to use it. Mm -hmm. That's, for example, well, this, is one, this is one reason why, you know, the melody becomes, you know, sort of violin and oboe combination, right? It's yeah. Very so the oboe came, came much more into the, into the orchestra around that sort of time before that mm -hmm. it was much more of a, a kind of rustic or squawky instrument. I guess in medieval times, the, a reed instrument was very much an outdoor kind of instrument. Right? I suppose a, a wit could say that during the early years of historically informed practice, Sonoba was also a squawking instrument. <laughs> it can be in the wrong hands today as well. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Of course, the earlier we go, I mean, the more rudimentary the notation get. Take Renaissance uh, music, for example, it can be a real mystery to what is meant. And I suppose the musicologists, you know, spend a great deal of their time deciphering it and putting into the hands yeah. of musicians but like yourself and saying what do you think you do you want to talk about you know sort of how what the relationship is between a working musicologist and actual practicing yeah. musicians how that relationship contributes to you know these reconstructions of lost sound worlds i mean it's a lifetime's work isn't it to to somehow go into like a period of of history in a certain area of Germany and to look at the handwritings of and to be able to understand that that's a, and maybe if you're regularly traveling around the world in concerts it's not the kind of time you can spend to become an expert I mean some people do actually um, there are some very successful scholars and performing musicians it's quite rare I think to, to have the both just because your use of time needs to be incredibly organized but so I I, I do I, I rely on good editions I think that's important and I, I learned how to make editions myself when I was at, you know, I think it's always valuable to look at the source I mean what I often do is take uh, take a good edition and then make my own changes or if I feel like that and often the chord will sound wrong and I'll then say maybe, maybe there's a mistake in the edition it's very good to have the original source and then you can see that actually it's not clear in the original mm -hmm. maybe the uh, scholar had thought well it could be that but I disagree I think it's that and so it's a good point it's, and the scholar does not always mark you know that it no, was no. unclear in the text it yes they've got to make thought, a decision yeah. they've mm -hmm. got to make a decision that's their that's their job mm -hmm. and and maybe it was the right one maybe it was the wrong one that's often a matter of taste or, or aesthetic so yeah it's important to remember I think that in some towns I mean people don't travel as much we take it for granted that we can hop on a plane now but much more common I think in in previous times to have traditions in, in, in fixed places because people didn't really go too much around you know so if you have a sort of singing and, and choral tradition in a north german city and that would have been taking place there and the handwriting is something that people would have understood and, and, and so a mark in a mark in hamburg may mean something different than yes. a mark in dresden or like so. you see that now mm -hmm. my, my son sings in the chapel or choir is just starting there and they you know they a squiggle like that is something that they all write meaning make a make a gap there or and that's understood by everyone that works in that tradition it's a shorthand and people People had that more. So, so how to understand that, and what does it mean? Maybe some of those things are lost, and I'm sure they are. But, but you no, know, we have to do our best to to try and recreate that. I love the medieval um, squiggles and things because it's very precious, wasn't it, to be able to write them mm. when when people made manuscripts. That was a luxury. And they were incredibly lot. economical in their use of the thing. Right, you can have an entire mm. thing just in you know. There's one stave. 
Yes, and the entire you know music is indicated by that stave, but it takes an enormous amount of skill in order to be able to decipher yeah. what yeah. that stave means. And that's I suppose what the musicologists do, you know, sort of in their in their editions and their tomes. But I suppose there is another group of people who also need to decipher, and that is of course the continual players. Mm. Right. Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah, you yourself as a cellist were a continuum player. You know, you have to reconstruct your figured bases and the like. Do you mm. want to talk about how you go about reconstructing those practices? Figured um, base is uh, something that comes along after 1600, mm. really, when we start to have a baseline, which is called the, the continuo. The continuo, because it doesn't stop, it's a continuous yeah. part. And I suppose what, what we have to do, there are some instruments in the Baroque orchestra that have just the bass line written, but yet are supposed to play the harmony on top. And that's a very nice thing to do, because you can be very creative with that. You can, you, you can essentially play C major in all sorts of formations above the, the bass C. And if you've got a lute or two lutes and a harp and uh, lots of different instruments doing the same thing, you can have lots of uh, lots of creative um, mm. possibilities. I suppose there is a, a styles of doing that in different places and different times, and there's different treatises that one can look at where people like Handel wrote a, wrote a guide for the continuo. Uh, there's a lot of treatises which say, well, you know, here's a, here's a good way how to move the hand, and you mustn't pass in this way, and you mustn't do consecutive notes in this way, and here's a good time to do contrapuntalism. You must stay beneath the voice in this, but in this place only use two chords. And so lots of opinions, lots of ways of doing things differently. It's good to be informed and to try and understand it. Wouldn't necessarily try to always stick to the rules because everyone has different hands, everyone has different mm -hmm. body sizes. I suppose even if you have a treatise in the 17th century saying you must do this, it's probably still the case that many people didn't do that and did opposite things. Mm -hmm. There's even a view that if it's written down, it probably means that people weren't doing it, which is why it had to be written down. Well, it's a, just a reminder that music is, at a very deep level, a physical activity. And yes. these are the act of making music sure. is a physical activity. And what we can see in the notation, I'm not going to say a pale shadow of that, mm. but is really just an indication to the person who has to make the music, okay, here's the general direction in which you, should go, you can go, but ultimately the, the musician who is making the music. For, for example, if you were going, let's go back to, Gregorian plane chant, how fast should it go? I mean, there's no recording of the original people in medieval times singing, singing chant. So I suppose an experiment might be we have to decide the music is written or, or it's sung to tones in order to carry the sound in large distances. Because it's true that if you if you speak, if you go to a large cathedral and say hello, it doesn't carry. But if you if you intone it, hello, then it carries itself. So this you could say that the chant is a way to carry the voice over over these Gothic large spaces. So if that is your foundational principle, then I suppose you could go to a building and see at what speed you could sing the thing with someone at the other end saying, I understood that how I didn't. That could be, for example, a good experiment to do to find out what speed one should sing at. And therefore, maybe the different sizes of buildings make you do things in different speeds. So that we wouldn't say that uh, Alma Redemptoris should go at this speed. Uh, we could say that maybe in Notre Dame it might have gone that speed. And then, you know, just it's just um, practicality, isn't it? And mm. I think music and art is informed by practicality. You know, we have to remember that. Certainly, performing, yeah, yes. arts, yes, yes. certainly yeah. the performing arts. Yeah.
Johnny, let's turn now to questions of countries and repertoire and the like. You know, you yourself have an enormous discography of, you know, sort of music, including chamber music from, you know, the earlier Baroque periods, which willy-nilly makes you an expert on, <laughs> on these composers. Oh, sure, yeah. Let's perhaps start the beginning of Baroque period with Monteverdi. Many medievalists would would be most comfortable with putting Italy at, you know, the start of any sure. list of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, of study of medievalism. You know, for those who don't know, Monteverdi was a composer born in 1567, died in 1643. He was born in Cremona. He started his career in Mantua and then, you know, for most of his career was in Venice. Um, he's most famous for his operas, of course, Orfeo, The Return of Ulysses, The Coronation of, of Popea, um, all of which are rather sad in a way. <laughs> but, um, you know, sort of magnificent works. Um, in addition to the operas, he wrote an enormous amount of madrigals. And this is uh, something you've recorded, uh, some of them, you know, in uh, 2014 with mm -hmm. uh, Magicals for Love and Loss. Can talk to us a little bit about, you know, sort of Monteverdi's importance in, you know, sort of developing music and the challenges of what it's like to try to recreate. Monteverdi was an enormously important person. At the time, that these composers were all arguing like a sort of conoscenti club of, uh, of, of people that were really trying to decide what should music be and how should we can it and what does it mean for people and how to, how can it be most perfect and Monteverdi was uh, often uh, in arguments against there's a there's a famous letter correspondence between Monteverdi and a theorist because they accused him of breaking the rules all the time and they said well you can't just put in dissonances which are unprepared like that it's uh, it's not in according to the classical ideal and of course around the Renaissance time people were quite obsessed with with trying to recreate the Greek ideals of well, not that anyone really knew what they what they, what were. they were, so <laughs> they had they were trying to to recreate the perfection of the perfection of the of the past. Let's say so. Monteverdi was trying to do that, and he wrote a, the beginning of his Madrigal Eighth Book. His Madrigals are really, especially towards the end of them, they start out in Book One and Two in two or three parts, and not too complex, quite sort of like other composers and later on they really push the boundaries they come in quite symphonic they have a large instrument uh, written also with the voices and there's a big discourse at the beginning of the eighth i think it's the eighth book you have to check it out the madrigals of love and war because essentially monteverdi would go to a tavern let's say and sit in the tavern and listen because he wanted to to portray warlike arguments so he observed warlike speech so he went to hear people having fights and he noticed that when people get really upset with each other, their voice goes higher and they speak faster. So that's something <laughs> that he, he noticed. And he wrote this down and he called that the the, the style of uh, the uh, recitando, the, the fast warlike style. So when people are talking in his madrigals about battles and things from the past. So one of his madrigals, in the, it's the big one, it's called the Combatimento of Tancredi in Florinda. Mm -hmm which is the setting of the part of the, the Tasso, isn't it? The Jerusalem mm -hmm. Liberati can edit that out. He uses these these uh, techniques here and he has people, uh, the instruments actually play very fast notes when they go mm -hmm. to fight and he develops hitting sounds. And also there's a horse at the beginning which starts bam, bam, bam. So he's just all the time trying to take the world and turn it into, which is according to these um, conoscenti, this, this, what they're trying to do is, how can we best recreate the sounds of the world and the most honest uh, sentiments 
from life as human experiences? How can we create them the best in music? That was the argument going around all the time. And it's really one of the most remarkable things to hear. You, perhaps when you approach this repertoire unprepared, you have all these visions about, you know, sort of in your, your preconceptions in your mind about what it'd be like, and then you go to the commandamento, mm. and it's astonishing. Yes, you sound, sometimes it sounds like you're in a barnyard, you know, with the horse clopping yeah. or uh, something yeah. like that. I don't believe that you've recorded it with Yeah, no, we've, rec we've recorded yeah. it with Okay. Yeah. yeah, amazing piece. Another thing to look out for is the, the, the Madrigal Zephyro Torna. In fact, there's two settings of it the five part one, could be five or six, the, the later one, the extraordinary um, dissonances at the end talks about the pain of lost love or whatever that's kind of incredible music very expressive so he found a new expressive language they these guys were all entrepreneurs in, in forging a new they had this thing called harmony and they were all just this new shiny toy and people were doing crazy stuff with it which at the time to put an f sharp against g that's just way out man that's crazy if they'd heard modern jazz now they they, they would be shocked it's like wow you can do that that's allowed <laughs> yeah, they were always rules then and so mm. very exciting time so monteverdi fresh fresh exciting uh breaking rules making new things trying to be as accurate as possible to to as, as loyal to the philosophy of bringing bringing sentiments into music and of course hugely influential on subsequent and you know, composers Cavalli, sort of uh, Vivaldi, you know just yeah. incredibly seminal well let's then hop to the other side of europe and go north for a bit mm -hmm. um let's 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 address a country that doesn't get tend to get a lot of attention in in medieval circles and that's denmark uh let's talk a little bit about dietrich buxtehude um we often think of him as being from hamburg but in fact oh, yeah. he was from danish descent oh, uh, yes indeed and um so he uh for our listeners, you know, Dietrich Buxtehude was uh, born in either 1637 or 39. We only know this from the baptismal record, so we're not really sure about what the exact date of birth is. He died in 1707, and he made his name as a very famous organist in uh, Hamburg. And Johann Sebastian Bach, of course, is famed for having uh, walked by foot to go yes. here. Yes, uh, books to play the organ, a hundred miles. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Mm. So, um, Johnny, you of course uh, uh, know very well the chamber music of this, having recorded um, the sonatas from Opus One, which is absolutely a magical album. I will confess that when I opened it up, I said, "Oh, books to Huda, this is going to be mm. dreary," and I was absolutely no, captivated. And I must tell you, I listened to to it a hundred times. Um, it was also, I mean, nominated for a Grammy Award, uh, which tells you uh, how do I put this gently? One does not often think of 17th century music being nominated for a Grammy Award, no, but uh, yeah. this uh, this this recording absolutely uh, is astonishing. What are the challenges of uh, you know sort of recreating this world, uh, which is very different, very Protestant? Yes, uh, that's yes, sure. um, and you can see it in the thing. Uh, one that, although it does push the boundaries, has an enormous respect for rules. Yes, so yes. so the different countries, I think, come to the different. Uh, modernities a little later and different different times. Uh, the the invention of the violin, the violin family in Italy, was going on really at the the Monteverdi's time, and that was so there was always already a transition between fretted vile family instruments mm -hmm. and new louder possible uh, more possibilities uh, um, the violin family instruments, and that happened more uh, earlier in Italy. Of course the German Baroque sensibilities, they, they, they kept their, their tradition, let's say, a little longer. So, for example, the Opus 1 books do the sonatas that you're talking about have 
for, for, for gamba and violin. So it's that bridging of the, the worlds a little bit, but they keep the they keep that sort of vile, darker, more Protestant as you say, sound world uh, a little longer. So it's um takes uh, I think that's important to to understand. J. C. Bach, who's uh, um, Bach's uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's uncle, Uncle Bach, mm. he was a real innovator as well, and very expressive harmonic music making. You get music often in in five parts. It's very thick uh, writing, very very expressive uh, writing, and you've got to think that books two is somehow part of that world. So it's a very harmonic sound world. It's a little little darker sounding with the with the old with the older instruments, and that's where that kind of lies. But at the same time, books two is extremely creative with that and there's a lot of joy in that music so as as, as you said I, I think that when I looked at the recorded um, literature of Buxtehude and I tried to find for example his sonatas which are very inventive and joyous I couldn't find any records that weren't done with with organ and very slow and dour because people thought well that's how it should be it doesn't mean it's that, anything but dour, yes, yes well exactly it's very very brilliant joyful music it doesn't mean that you can't you know, it doesn't mean you can't say all Protestants. It's a mistake to say in mm. the same way to say well, all Tudors were, you know, all very miserable people because there were plagues and everyone was very unhappy. You say that all medieval people uh, were very sad because they didn't live very long. It's just not true, is it? Mm. I mean, you can be very. I, I imagine even we could say because of the constraints and and tragedy of life, um, there were more bursts of stronger. You know, if you had a child, you'd be, I suppose, more, more yeah, blessed and more joyful joy, yes. because it wouldn't be lasting very long and <laughs> might likely die. So, so, so you, you you could push it that way. So the sound world, I think, is 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 a little darker, um, just because of the instruments. Um, but it's not doesn't mean it's less joyful. A lot of his cantatas, Buxtuda's cantatas, there's a rather brilliant Alleluia by Buxtuda, which is essentially a, a shakon, uh, absolutely. Brilliant. Sounds like a modern pop music piece, actually. Very, very, very joyful and wonderful. And um, I've done a few of his cantatas, and uh, it's just fantastic music. He's a great composer, a great mind, and it's not not. Um, well, it's obvious that someone like Sebastian Bach was just really attracted by someone so capable as a composer. And thank you for that. Let's stay with the Protestant North for a little oh, bit, yeah. and just yeah. move a little bit over to the left-hand side, and uh, you <laughs> know, sort of the own our own island of of, of uh, uh, Great Britain. Uh, let's right. talk a little bit about John Blow, uh, the teacher of Henry Purcell from uh, about sixteen forty nine to seventeen oh eight. He was the organist of Westminster Abbey, a private musician mm. to King James the Second choir master at St. Paul's Cathedral, and the composer to the Chapel Royal, where I understand now ah, your own son sings. Yes, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, he was Purcell's teacher, and general understanding is that John Blow's opera, Venus and Adonis, uh, was perhaps the model for Purcell's own Dido and Aeneas, yeah, a great masterpiece of you know, the Elizabethan period. You yourself, you've recorded with Archangel o the Odes. Um, yeah, mm. That came out in 2017. I will confess, I find this music very difficult oh. to approach. Yes, which is odd because I find Purcell quite easy mm. to approach. But though, this is a different world. Uh -huh. yes, and one that is at least one step further removed from our current understanding of how music works and the like. And I'd perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about how you land, how you landed upon you know, sort of decided that this repertoire was worth being revived and what it, what its attractions are and how somebody who, you know, how a fan of early music 
ought to approach this music if it is at first a yeah. bit baffling. Suppose I, I look at the scores of music and I, I think probably because I'm a musician I can read read music and I have that experience with a lot of different music. I can sort of see whether it's quality mm. music from a first look. And John Blow's music is quality music. There's no doubt about it. When I say quality, what do I mean? I suppose... Uh, well, well constructed, like a good craftsman, like 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 a carpenter would look at the table. So, well, this is a good table. You know, his legs have been really put on properly. There's a, the right technique at the joining of the corners there. That this has been done properly. It's by someone that knows how to do it. Surprisingly, there are a few composers or craftsmen throughout history that, in music that are that are really good. I mean, we, Maurice Ravel was known as being one of them. Yes, well, and, well, most, and, of, yes, yeah, most or, of the top dogs that we uh-huh. we know right. have a name, don't they? I mean, uh, Modest Mussorgsky in Russia, for example, he would send his scores off to Rimsky-Korsakov to correct and make sure right. that you know sort of things were joined yeah, appropriately. Yeah. Yeah, yes, so. John Blow, I think, has a lot of influence from France. There's the you have to correct me on the history because you guys are probably much better his, uh, knowing of history than I am. But but didn't Charles the First head off to um, France at some point to avoid being? Uh, he had it. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, and he <laughs> ha- hung out there in France and got to know very much the the styles of the king. And uh, when he came back, put them all into practice. Was very keen on all that sort of stuff. So England's always had a funny relationship with France at that period. Humphrey Pelham Humphrey. He was another one that went off to France and studied there and we copied a lot of the great things in the court of the King of France just because he had quite a splendid setup there and I think everyone was quite attracted to that. So you can really hear the influence of French music in Blow and a real desire to try and recreate that kind of style of music, especially after the after the interregnum and that kind of thing. It sort of flowered at that point. So I was drawn to do his music because I thought he's a really good composer. His music, it's interesting in the context of Purcell, who's one of the great English, he is maybe our greatest Agreed. English yeah. composer. We don't have a lot of composers. Either here or Dolan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Beforehand. Yeah. Um, he went to Denmark, didn't he? He was in the you know, Scandinavian countries. I thought he played the lute for Yes, I think so. King. I spoke to a, a, my friend who's a very good lute player, Thomas Dunford, and he plays a lot of Dowland. And he told me that um, the king... In, in Scandinavia, sat on had this, one of the first high fives because he he put his loop player down down under the ground and put vents for the sand to come up so he could sit on his throne and listen to amplified lute music coming up through the the floor. Isn't that a nice thing? Yeah, it would have been, been stuck <laughs> down in a sort of cell playing beautiful lute music through a passage so that the king could enjoy from above while he had his. And presumably it would have had an amplifying effect, yes. Probably, they mm. worked out those things. Anyway, that's a little side topic. But um, So I wanted to do this blow. I think one of the things you're talking about with the recordings, I do, uh, it's an interesting time to record because a lot of music, most music has been recorded and it's been recorded well. So what's the, there's not so much point just to keep going around Let's do another recording of Mozart piano concertos and another and another and another. Well, you're not doing it because it needs recording. You're doing it because you have something to say about... Yes, you know, and I, I think that's said. often... I look at... So for, I, I try to identify what I don't think has been done to a satisfactory degree yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's maybe not put that too much out there in public because it's not a matter of saying, well, that person's bad and that person's bad. According to, to my view, I thought Buxtehude's sonatas could have... 
had never been done with a joyous approach and an inventive approach to uh, chamber music making. And I thought when the same a bit about John Blow. There were on that recording, there's a couple of um, odes which hadn't been recorded before. And there's actually a lot of his music which still hasn't been done, which I find very fascinating because he was a, a celebrated person at the court in Britain. He was an uh, important composer. And if he, if he was French, his music would just be trumpeted as the great, French mm. culture history, but in Britain we don't do that. We 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 don't trumpet our great successes. We sort of bury them in libraries, um, which is a shame. And we don't wave our British flags around, which is a shame. I mean, maybe that's changing now. But mm. but I thought it would be nice to to bring his music a little bit out of out of the cupboard. I was struck by one thing that you said uh, in particular uh, in, in when talking about Blow, and that is about the state of recording, especially of this early music. I mean, I think I'm, if I may summarize, you know, the risk of over-summarizing the whole current school of historically informed practice of early music first got its initial start late 70s mm. early mm. 80s people like the Hilliard Ensemble etc cetera, etc cetera. and it is fair to say that aesthetic standards have progressed For enormously sure. oh, yeah. since that time both in terms of sort of intellectual matters such as you know sort of faithfulness to the text so, such as speak or you know the sophistication with which you recreate you know very sketchy uh, it's become mainstream as well but now. it's also but it's also very prosaic matters which is like can the players play in tune mm -hmm. right um uh yeah and you want to talk a little bit about things from the performer's perspective perhaps about what particular challenges the recreation of early music poses for them and you know mm -hmm. sort of what it, what different alternative techniques they must have to use yeah. in order so to i think it's a numbers game as far mm. as I'm concerned, if you have a thousand loop players, you're going to have a handful of really accomplished loop players. Mm. That's, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure whether what the percentage of of talent, the, the number of people that try to take up something is, but surely there's there's a hierarchy where certain people move up and can just find that they can play the loop really well, and some people can do the harpsichord, and some people are better at sports. And you know, there's wonderful human abilities to be excel in different areas. So it's a numbers game. In the beginning, I think, you know, in the 70s, you point out, there probably were not many. There's a few experimental people say, well, wow, let's try this weird instrument which no one plays. Now so, of course, it's going to sound out of tune because if you'd have three people that do it, the chances of any three of them being good is very low. They're probably just well, also, they wouldn't have just the accumulated <laughs> sum of practice on, say, the sackbutt. Yes. yes, but what they did do was inspire a whole generation mm. of younger people who play cello, for example, wonder what these weird and wonderful instruments are doing. And let's look into that. So they, a lot of people then started the generation after them and more and more and more. And so, of course, the quality of playing goes up because as more people do it, people figure out, pass around tips, maybe there's just more people. Mm -hmm. So it, people play better in tune for that, I think, mm -hmm. for sure. Recording qualities also. I mean, the end the technology... Of microphones and that's vastly improved now even in 20-30 years the amount of sample rates and the, the kind of terabytes of hard drives and digital things that's just gone into a completely different world so so yeah everything the technology has really improved in 30 years instrument making as more people demand you know it's just market forces and it's great i think we have a very good time at the moment for the historical performance is good. Mm. And London is a real centre for that. So yeah, really glad sure. at the end of the sure. centre of, you know, sort of where it all is, all yeah. excellent. 
let's move then on to our French friends. Yes. Uh, oh, Chabantier. French, yeah. okay. Sort of, I know you yourself have a particular uh, love for Chabantier. Uh, you spoke very warmly, I know, about uh, the Lessons de Tenebre, another, mm. another thing that, you know, sort of the, the layperson might find a little bit difficult to access. Um, Charpentier, for those who don't know, he was born in 1643 and he lived until 1704. He was the house musician for a certain Duchesse de Guise, who was a who had her own little court, so yeah. to speak. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was not her director of music, interestingly enough, nor was he oh. exclusively devoted for her. During the period he was in her service, he wrote as much music for other patrons as he wrote for her, but he seemed to be very well treated. Mm. He had his own apartment. Sure. Uh, he was not uh, down with the servants in the basement. He was very well mm -hmm. treated and appears to be sort of a courtier. He was incredibly prolific. Masses, operas, motets, sequences. If you go through the list of the repertoire, it really is mm. quite amazing. And um, it has a very definite sound signature quality to it i mean just technically there's these uh, you know sort of these cadences with the mm. four three sort of trill at the end done by that by the tenor which is uh, you know almost puts a, a fingerprint on his work mm. for me he was as i mentioned before at the transition point between modality and and tonality in terms of his things uh, in terms of his productions and i i just wondered if you might want to speak to a little bit about his particular challenges or attractions it's interesting you mentioned that he was in um, in, a, in in private employment. It's uh, a bit like Monteverdi was, and you know, I mean, mm. you you if you give a really talented artist basically unlimited money and a, and, and a sinecure <laughs> and a place to live, and yes, it's like a laboratory. A lot of stuff. <laughs> like, here's here's the most talented musicians of your generation. Here's a lovely chapel and the freedom to write whatever kind of music you want and to experiment and to your only task is to to make great great music that we can enjoy that's like a real gift isn't it that's, that's mm. like a paradise so he i think probably knew how lucky he was and went away and wrote and wrote and wrote the french style of music is quite interesting it takes a little bit of getting used to very helps to speak french doing french music because the language has a lilt to it, a uh, rhythm, all the accents of words are at the end instead of the beginning, which results in a little Lombardic rhythm, which we know as inegalite. And so they would often not trouble themselves by writing down dots and it was they wouldn't just write, yes, they would just write. You'd have to know what was there. Yes. Mm. So those things, those things take a little bit of getting used to. I, I was lucky that I trained a lot in france i had a i was an apprentice conductor i was an assistant conductor to to a french group called les afflorissants who did a lot of revival of of rameau and charpentier so i learned I, at the hands of the master well i just spent a long time with that orchestra and i was always really impressed with with how they would take a piece of rameau work with a british orchestra or a german orchestra or an american orchestra and trying to figure out all those ornaments because there's a lot of ornamentation on every note they would just read it straight through it's like everyone's had that in their blood somehow it's interesting Charpentier, i think went to rome didn't he study with carissimi mm -hmm. so there's also that that um italianate uh, study that he did and he's sort of combining the two that was a that was a french uh, uh, obsession was how to again how to make the perfect music how to combine mm -hmm. nouveauté of the italian spirit and harmony with the French sensibility and so that, that was their mission and um, he and Lully who was an Italian I suppose um, were the two at that time in the 17th century that were really making a lot of progress and his music is very 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 beautiful.
Well, I think that brings us, you know, sort of towards the end of our allotted time. I just thought I would like to, you know, sort of invite you a little bit to speak about Vivaldi, who, although is slightly beyond our, 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 the cutoff point of the thing, I know is your reason for coming to Budapest. Sure. And we have, we have Vivaldi to thank uh, for your presence here with us today. Perhaps mm -hmm. you'd like to talk to, about, uh, to, to us a little bit about uh, what's on store, what's what's on show. Uh, yeah, we, with the special we're world. performing tomorrow and Saturday in, um, in the List Academy concert hall. We're doing this piece called La Senna Festeggiante, which is the joyous celebration of the river Seine, the French river. The Vivaldi wrote it in order to impress uh, French patrons, and so it's uh, basically um, a homage to the King of France and in three allegorical characters, the three singers, the River Seine is a singer. Yeah, the soprano. Uh, no, that's the bass. Oh, oh yes, the bass rule of the river at the beginning, and then there's the uh, the Age of Gold or the Golden Age, mm -hmm. and then there's La Virtu, the Virtue. Of course, these three characters all say how great the king is, and Vivaldi is writing very much in the French style, so you get a lot of uh, a lot of these dotted rhythm types of music. His music, of course, is is full of energy and colour. So it sort of combines that. It's really interesting. I think national styles, we, we're having this debate a lot now, aren't we, with the mm. EU and what's going on in Brexit and things like that. These national styles, I, I think I do support the differences of different of, of these different types of music and cultures. You can hear them. They're all still connected in such a strong manner, but yet they have such an interesting flavours throughout the history. And I can understand why why that defines people and people don't want to want to lose that. So so here there's a very much an Italian Vivaldi kind of mixed up with him trying to be a bit French, which is which is rather sweet. It's great music. Yeah. Enjoy. Come along. Well we look forward to it. Yeah. Anyway. Um I think that brings us to the end of our allotted time. On behalf of CU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect and Boogie Nights, we'd like to thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thanks Johnny for Cohen, having welcome right. and we hope you enjoy Budapest. All the best. Thank you.